As you know, we have been talking about this Advent series, It's a Wonderful Life. Last week was Endure It. This week is Hope in It and showing you just a few meaningful clips from the old movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, we're going to jump into a scene really quick. If you'll notice, uh, we talked a little bit about the movie. Uh, last week, George was at a table with his father, Peter, uh, who is, uh, has a, a building and loan business that basically serves the poor. Mr. Potter is the evil, greedy old man who has basically taken over the town He believes the people of the town that are not of affluence and wealth, he calls them rabble. Uh, They seem to be um, a bother to him. And uh, the only business in town that keeps the poor in mind is Mr. Bailey's building and loan business, trying to help them get through hard times, get on their feet just to own a home. Well, Mr. Bailey, the very generous old man, has died and now... Uh, Mr. Potter is trying a power play to take over the only part of Bedford Falls that he hadn't gotten his hands around yet. He wants the building and loan. The, the video, the little clip that we're about to see of It's a Wonderful Life is uh, where Potter is trying to do his power play, get the board to vote to dissolve the building and loan because it's the only competition that Potter has. And George Bailey, who is about to leave, he has delayed his trip around the world to take care of some of the things his father needed him to do in his sickness and as his father's now passed, he's going to head off to college. But now reality is conflicting with his dreams and the tug of staying around and helping the poor of Bedford Falls and battling the evil Mr. Potter is tugging on his heart and the dreams and ideals of his youth are conflicting with the reality of what might be his call and purpose of life. So I want you to hear that as it comes out of him today uh, when he gives this speech to Mr. Potter. Watch this video. <laughs> what is that, Geddes? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now... I say... Just a minute, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Potter. Just a minute. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Doesn't make them better citizens? Doesn't make them better customers? You, you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they... Do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I've said too much. I... 
You're the you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. You find in George as he's about to walk out that door and head to college, and yet, if you know the story, you've watched the movie, it's that confrontation. The board winds up voting against Potter, and George stays around to run his father's business, and then the plot of the movie begins to unfold. There's something about George's tenacity in that moment. There was this hope on the inside of him. Even though he didn't want to stay around to do it, there was this hope on the inside of him of a better future for Bedford Falls and all of those poor people. No matter how bleak the circumstances were, there was this hope that something could be better. In the last few weeks, we've been talking about Advent. Most of us that grew up in this type of faith tradition didn't grow up talking a lot about Advent. If you did, if you grew up in an Episcopalian or Lutheran or some other type of liturgical church, maybe a Methodist church or Presbyterian church, maybe you did. And we've discussed the differences of why and why maybe it would be an opportunity for us to learn some things. And so we took the Advent wreath and last week we lit the first candle on the first Sunday of Advent and it was about enduring, even in times when, when things are tough, that you endure. And I want to expand on that thought today because the second candle of Advent, the second Sunday of Advent, the emphasis is on hope. And every week I'm reading two Advent passages of Scripture for you one out of the Old Testament and one out of the New Testament. And today I want us to look in the Old Testament to Genesis chapter 12, just three verses there. And you may not think of this as an Advent passage, but it is. And I want you'll see why in just a moment. Genesis chapter 12, verse number 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now that's an amazing statement. We have missionaries with us today and that's one of the most powerful missions statements in all of the Bible. God says to Abraham this promise, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth, Abraham, are going to be blessed through you. And Christmas is how that ultimately happened. And then the passage I want to read out of the New Testament is in Luke chapter 1. And I'm just going to ask you to find your place there and hold it because the rest of our time together, we're actually going to be working our way through the first chapter of the book of Luke. Now next week, uh, the sermon topic is, It's a Wonderful Life, Believe in It. Because in case you've been living under a rock and you didn't, you didn't know, I don't want you to miss next Sunday because if you haven't heard, next Sunday will be our last opportunity to get together as a church family before the end of the world. Uh, according to the Mayan calendar, uh, December the 21st is a Friday, not this Friday, but the next Friday uh, is the end of the world. So next Sunday is it for us. And so uh, it, I just want us to look at the, at the end of the world in light of Advent, the second Advent of Jesus Christ. So uh, what the Scripture has to say about His return as a conquering King. So it's a wonderful life. Believe in it. It's something you can put your faith in. And I want us to examine that next week. If we were to compare our notes uh, of Christmas as adults, our experiences would probably be very different. 
But if we were to compare our experiences of Christmas as children, there would be some amazing similarities. Most likely, one of those similarities of Christmas when we were a child would be this, uh, probably this similar feeling of agonizing anticipation. This, as a kid, it seemed like the weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas, just those weeks lasted the entire year. Just those few weeks between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I, I, can, I can remember just the days before Christmas seemed like they moved along at a snail's pace. Now, with our family tradition, uh, everybody came to my grandparents' home and they arrived sometime on or before Christmas Eve. And all of our family, now each family had their own little traditions on Christmas morning, but we all came to my grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and the whole big uh, brood of us opened Christmas presents together on Christmas Eve. And I can remember we always lived the furthest away and traveling from one state to get back across multiple states and the long ride there and then you finally get to grandma's house and your cousins are there, some of you haven't seen in a year and you're playing and, and you're anticipating this moment of opening presents. But I had one uncle who every Christmas Eve worked a shift up until midnight for double time pay a holiday pay, and he didn't get off. And I didn't know why in the world we always had to wait for one uncle. There are a lot of uncles. We could open presents right now. Every kid is here, everybody else is here, except one uncle, and we had to wait on him. And it seemed like those hours between 6 in the evening and midnight when he got off were some of the most excruciating six hours of my life. I'm surprised I didn't have gray hair by the time I was five years old because of the agonizing anticipation of those six hours. Now as an adult, someone tells me today, we're 16 days away from Christmas and I say, no way, it can't be, it's too fast, I want to rewind, push pause. As a child, it, it was way too slow. But no matter how slow it came, no matter how agonizing the wait really was, eventually, eventually, it came. There was the promise of the certainty, as far away as it felt like, Christmas morning would eventually come. During that time, some of us probably had some other things in common as children. And I believe it's good for us this morning to have some confession time. I'm just going to ask some questions in the house of the Lord today. How many of you searched for the gifts that your parents had in the house? Just let me just say, you actually searched for them. Okay, this is good. You're getting closer to the Lord with this confession. <laughs> How many of you found the gifts that you looked for? Okay. Um, now for the really bad kids. How many of you actually got them out, played with them, put them back, and wrapped them back up? I want to see. All right. That's the really bad kids. And then you had to fake being surprised. We all want to see those people one more time, right? We all want to see who those people are. Wow. You never know who you're sitting beside. The waiting, the expectation, the anticipation actually got the best of you. The last ones that raised your hand. This idea of waiting, waiting, waiting is actually what sets up the Christmas story. The first Christmas. You may not realize it, but for many generations in the Jewish people, there was a, a remnant of people who waited every single day for the arrival of the Messiah. In every single generation, there was a remnant of people 
who lived their lives in obedience to God's commands every single day, believing and hoping that this could be the day that the Messiah would come. But different than waiting for our Christmas morning, these people lived with that anticipation, never seeing it fulfilled generation after generation after generation. Absolutely nothing in that regard happened. And matter of fact, 99.99% of all of those people who waited faithfully, holding on to the promise of the arrival or the advent of the Messiah, died and never saw that promise fulfilled. They prayed, they waited, they remained faithful. And while many of the Jews during that many, many years got distracted in the delay, they abandoned their faith, though it must have been a fairy tale to them. They thought all of this talk about a Messiah and the promise that God had made to Abraham was merely a myth. And in the delay, they got distracted. They abandoned their faith. And they looked at this remnant of faithful people who got up every day with hope, every day with anticipation, went through the monotony and the routines and the disciplines and obedience of Old Testament law to be faithful to God. These people who had abandoned their faith in the delay, in the seeming silence of God, looked at all of this remnant of faithful people and said, who in the world would devote their lives to a 2,000 year old promise? But there was a group of people in every generation that lived every day of their life in hopeful anticipation that today might be the day that Messiah comes. I want to introduce you to two of those people this morning as we walk through the Scripture. That's where Luke 1 comes in. This is so relevant to us because at some point, In your Christian experience, if you serve God long enough, you're going to have this experience where God is so quiet, where He is so inactive, He is so seemingly silent, that there will be these times in our lives where we will wonder, why am I doing this? Why am I serving and why am I giving and why am I obeying? And as a teenager or a young adult, why am I missing out? I mean, there are all these peers of mine having all this fun and yet my parents say or my pastor says or the church says that if I follow God, I'm going to live a righteous life and I'm to abstain from all of this stuff. But why? Why am I missing out? And why don't I just move in with her? Why don't I just live with them? Why, why didn't I just cheat on the exam? Why don't I just take the money? Why, why do I walk in integrity when nobody else I work with does? Why do I continue day after day to live my life as if there was something bigger than me? If there was actually something to the Bible, that there was something to all of this stuff? Am I... Just following along because my parents gave me this or because this is all I know? Is this really a a belief or is it just a superstition I've been handed? There are times and seasons all of us will go through periods of our life when our attempts at being faithful, we look around and say, am I getting anything out of this faithful service to God at all? Where is it leading me? Where is it taking me? If you have ever been there, and if you haven't, you serve God long enough, you will. The Advent story, the Christmas story, especially the story of the two characters we're going to talk about today, is your story. It's my story. In Luke chapter 1, 
beginning verse 5. It says, in the time of Herod. Let me pause for a moment. This is the Herod that killed all of the babies trying to find Jesus. He was the king of Judah. There was a priest in his time named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Now, now that meant that uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah were basically from a long line of preacher's kids. These these two uh, people, this man and this woman, are uh, PKs, preacher's kids, and, and they've been around the temple. They grew up in the temple. They understand the law. They've heard it talked about at the dinner table. They come from righteous people. But the next line is where we pick up some tension in the story. Verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. When God looked at these people, when the angels of heaven looked over and said, find us somebody that's doing it right. And God pointed at Zechariah and Elizabeth and He said, those two people are doing it right. They were doing everything they were doing blamelessly based on a 2,000 year old promise. God had been silent for nearly 700 years of the last 700 years of Israel's history and yet Zechariah and Elizabeth get up every day. They tend to what God has asked of them in spite of His apparent silence and distance. They lived every day as if Christmas was coming. They lived every day as if the Messiah was actually going to show up as if God was actually going to keep His promise with no evidence in their life at all that it was going to be true. They lived faithful in the details all based on an old promise. And the question some skeptic would ask them today if they were being interviewed, well, how's that working out for you? Verse 7 But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both very old. So let's get this right. You're getting up day after day after day, waiting on the Messiah, serving in the temple, being good people, missing out on opportunities, and this God that you're so faithful to leaves you without an heir. He leaves you without kids. Now you have to understand in the culture that Elizabeth was in at that particular moment, it was always, infertility was always the woman's fault. There were no medical testings at that time that would would talk about uh, why the infertility was present. So because women were not revered in that culture, viewed as just a little more than property and and, uh, they were not not given an opportunity in education. One of the greatest gifts they had for that society was birthing children. And when uh, uh, there was an inability in a marriage to birth a child, it was assumed that it was the woman's fault. They got the blame. So understand where Elizabeth is at this particular moment. And then above and beyond that, socially, there was this religious stigma that God blessed a woman with a child, or if a child of a woman died, then it was God either not blessing her. So if a woman was unable to have a child, it was literally thought that she was cursed by God. So Elizabeth had lived faithful as a young lady, 
and in middle age and now as an old woman with this guilt and this shame and all of the people looking on her. And Scripture reveals that Elizabeth and Zechariah had prayed the desperate prayer that any infertile couple prays. And in the middle of all of that, even in their old age, God had continued to say no. And Elizabeth is forced to live with the shame and the pain all of the way up to her old age. Now follow this. Their entire faithfulness to God in the middle of all of this guilt and shame and delay and silence of God. Their entire faithfulness to God was based on a promise made to one of their distant ancestors to thousand years earlier. Not 2,000 years ago from today, but 4,000 years ago from today, 2,000 years ago from when they lived in the first century. So God, as the story goes, supposedly appeared to Abraham. And as I read to you a moment ago out of the Old Testament passage from Genesis 12, God said to him, I will make you into a great nation. Okay, that's part of the promise that that actually happened. And then God goes on to say, I will bless you and I will make your name great. Well, that that happened because most of you had heard heard about Abraham before you came in here today. But then this is where it starts to break down. God says, I will bless you and I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. And that seemed to happen for a little while. And even now in our world, it seems like why do so many people get away with treating Israel the way they do when, when, when there's that promise? And then, and then you go on the very last statement. He says to Abraham, And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That last statement is the root idea of why Jews believed and still believe that there is more for Israel. If you know the story, Abraham finally in his old age, he had a son who had a son, who had a bunch of sons, who moved to Egypt and they became a nation and they moved back into their promised land and then they became a kingdom. And when they become a kingdom, this is where things really took off. It was during the age of the kingdom that this is where God was going to... Everybody thought this is where God is going to use Israel to bless all the peoples of the earth because they have become a kingdom and God is going to keep His promise through the lineage of Abraham. So there was David and there was the golden age of Israel through Solomon and it was really incredible. And if there was ever a time God was going to bless all of the peoples of the earth, it would have made sense for Him to do it under the reign of Solomon because after Solomon, the nation split. Things fell apart and they were ravaged by civil war and wars of outside invaders. There were good kings and there were bad kings. And during the time between Solomon's followers and the days of Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke 1, Israel changed hands, whether it be by king or by the occupation of another nation, over 25 times. And during those many years, many, many Jews during that time turned away from temple worship. They turned away from their faith in God. And they ultimately integrated into Roman life and worshipped their gods. Or they integrated into Greek life and worshipped their gods. Because after all, God had not kept His promise to Abraham. He had been silent too long. It was all over. But not for everybody. Not Zechariah. Not Elizabeth. If you would have come to them at that time when God had been silent in the mundane and routine of their life, if you would have come to them in the shame and guilt of their infertility and says, guys, it's over, it's a myth, it's not going to happen, 
It can't happen. Sure, part of God's promise to Abraham came true over time. Maybe that was coincidence. But Israel will never rise from the ashes. Israel will never be a player on the scene of world events again. Nothing could ever come from this itty-bitty part of the Roman Empire that's going to impact the world. Give it up. Walk away. Enjoy the remaining years of your life. Because God, if there even is a God, has abandoned you. If we would have said that to them in those years of silence, we would have been wrong. The reason Luke begins his story with this story, the reason it's in Luke 1, is because this is the beginning of something new that God was about to do that would result in the fulfillment of that 2,000 year old promise to Abraham. This is so important because there are seasons in our lives when we wonder, is God active? Is He there? Does He even care? The advent, the Christmas story, inside of this story, inside of this season of advent, there is a reminder that the answer to those hard questions is a resounding yes. He is there. He does care. And here's how the story goes on. Verse 8 of Luke 1. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now you have to know there were 23 different divisions of priesthood and one time a year, one man out of all of those different divisions, out of all of those families was selected, uh, one man to have this sacred honor. And they, were cast, they would cast lots and they uh, uh, believed that God chose that man by the casting of lots to go in and burn incense on this special day. Verse 10 And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. And and Zechariah was was selected. So he goes in by himself. All the people are outside. And Zechariah goes in by himself. Now verse 11. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. I don't know, I I hear people talk today about seeing angels and how they walked along buddy, you know, hand in hand, uh, unafraid. I I don't know, I I have a feeling if you saw a representative from God, there would be this sense of awe and fear uh, if you saw it like you say, not me. Well, here here is a righteous man and he wasn't afraid. That means we all ought to be afraid. (laughs) And then it begins with this, I don't know, I guess this is modus operandi for angelic announcements. Do not be afraid. Everywhere you turn in the Bible. Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. That's really important for us to know. I don't see anything working. I don't, I don't hear anything back. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I mean, how do I know? How do I keep getting up every day and going through the mundane and the routine and the, and the faithfulness? And I've got all these questions going through my head. How do I know? And then the angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard. Sometimes that's all I need to know. I don't have to know my prayer has been answered. There's just some comfort in knowing my prayer has been heard. 
your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John. And, and you and I both know he's going to be a famous John, John the Baptist. He will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Why, 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 is there so, why is he going to do that? He will bring many of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. Why would he have, so many have to come back? Because in the 700 years of God's seeming silence, where it seemed like God is absent, so many of the people of Israel had turned their heart away. And their son John was going to bring many of their hearts back to God. In verse 17, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn their hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Now I want you to notice the diplomacy in his voice. Gentlemen, pay attention to even the way Zechariah talked about women with an angel. He said, I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. This isn't a dummy. He had heard they write these things down. And it might get back to Elizabeth. So I'm an old man. But she's well along in years. And then he insinuates in that question. You know angel. You're just a little late. We prayed when we were young. Every day. It didn't happen. If you haven't noticed, we passed middle age. And we prayed every day. And you know, even though it doesn't make sense, and even though it's irrational, even though I'm old and yes, she's old, we still pray every day. And it doesn't make sense. So in case you haven't noticed, you showed up about 40 years too late. How can I believe you and know that these things are true? And the angel said, because, because I'm Gabriel. Because I stand in the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true. Listen to this statement. At their appointed time. Now read this with me again. Say that with me. At their appointed time. You mean to tell me that God has had this day marked on the calendar as an appointment all this time? During the last 700 years of silence, God has been silent on purpose that He planned all of this. He watched people walk away from Him in droves who gave up on His promise. You mean God had not quit paying attention during those years? You mean He heard every one of my prayers during those years for His people, my prayers, and all of the prayers of the people for generation after generation? You mean that while He was inactive, He was not absent? And the angel says, yes, that's what I mean. And that's what Advent means. That's what Christmas means. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. 
When this time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. And friend, this is just the warm-up act. This is the conversation before the real conversation. This story is the pre-concert for what God was about to do in His appointed time for those who had never given up on the promise. Even for those who had died in their hope along the way waiting. They, They never gave up on the fulfillment of the promise, but they passed that hope on to their children. The hope of a Messiah. They passed on to their children the hope that even though God seems silent now, He is active. The hope that God is a God that keeps His promise. Even though they died waiting, they passed on the hope so that in every generation there was a group of people who remained faithful even when it seemed like there was no logical reason to remain faithful. So that the next verse reads this way. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth a town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Finally, the day had come when God would put into action a plan He conceived before the foundations of the world and that He promised to Abraham 2,000 years earlier. This is our story. This is our dilemma today, right now. It's relevant. Do we stay or do we go? Do we believe or do we stop believing? Do we continue to serve faithfully or we just do something else? Do we give or do we just keep on spending thinking there's nothing to life but what we see around us? Do we stay engaged? Do we remain faithful in a difficult marriage or do we just do what everybody else is doing? Do we do the shady deal tomorrow at work or... Do we continue to maintain our integrity? Maintain our integrity. Do, do we cheat because it's easier? Or do we continue to be a person of honor? In every generation, there is a remnant of Christ followers who decide they will remain faithful in spite of the fact they see God do seemingly nothing for them in the meantime. The good news is if you're in that situation today, you're not alone. Welcome to the common experience of all of us who have put our faith in Christ and decided to follow Him in spite of what we see happening around us. Welcome to the world of Zechariah and Elizabeth who choose to walk blamelessly even when God is silent. Will you be that unique person who stands out from the crowd when you're taunted because serving God doesn't make sense or all the junk going on in your life, everybody can imagine why you would remain faithful. You're going to base all of that on a thousands of year old promise or be that unique student who walks with integrity when you make a a worse grade than if others around you cheat and make a better grade or you stand in the marketplace with honor and integrity when the other person gets ahead because they do it dishonestly. Honestly, even when you don't see God doing anything on your behalf. 
Christmas is a reminder that your faith in God is not misplaced. It's a reminder that when God is silent, He is not still. And when He is still, He is not disinterested. And even when we are convinced He is disinterested, we still know that He is sovereignly working out His plan for us and for the world. It is a reminder that God pays attention to and is blessed by those who remain faithful. But how do you do that, Pastor? One key word. Hope. In the world, hope is uncertain. I hope I don't get sick. I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. That is really uncertain. Hope is an uncertain thing in the world. But when you read about biblical hope, it is a certain hope. Chesterton, the great writer and preacher, there is no medicine like hope, no incentive so great, no tonic so powerful as expectation of something better tomorrow. And that's the advent. That's why this candle says, I will endure And this candle says, I can endure. Because when I had Christ in my heart embedded in me was this supernatural hope that is beyond my circumstance. That is built on the promise of God. And if I have to wait in silence for 700 years or whatever period the Lord gives me on this earth. I will rest even if I look like a fool in the promise of God. Because even when I cannot track Him, I will trust Him because He is Would you stand with me all over this place today? Christian hope is a certain hope. Prayer team, would you make yourself available this morning? I just want to challenge you today. Maybe you're in that situation. Maybe you're asking the hard questions. Maybe you need a miracle today. Maybe it's been 40 years of delay, five weeks of delay. Maybe you just got the diagnoses that I spoke of. Some of those families in our church just recently told some news from a doctor that has destroyed their world. Serving God when it doesn't make sense. Maybe you don't know Christ as your Savior today and you say, Pastor, I've walked away because I couldn't explain it, but I feel the Holy Spirit saying, trust me, even when you can't explain it. And if you need Christ today, these people are prepared and ready, whether it pray you through a miracle or pray you through the silence or pray you through to salvation, we are ready to agree with you today because Advent is the promise that your faith is not misplaced. And that God's heart is moved by people who remain faithful even when there's no evidence that says they should. You have His attention today and He has heard your prayer. I'm going to ask Pastor Bear to keep the environment worshipful after I speak a blessing over your life. And I want you to know these altars are open today. Father, I pray you'll bless them and keep them. That you'll make your face shine down upon them. That you'll be gracious to them. That you will turn your countenance, their direction, and give them peace. And Lord, will you instill in us a hope in the situation and a hope that helps us move beyond the situation.